Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We wear masks to contain the spread of coronavirus, and social distancing and frequent hand washing also help keep us safe. But what happens when someone in our community gets sick? Testing for COVID-19 must be available with short wait times for results, but contact tracing is also important to prevent an outbreak. Nationwide funding to help bolster contact tracing and testing stalled in Congress. Has Connecticut invested enough in this important public health tool? Coming up, we talk to public health district directors about the resources they need to help keep coronavirus cases low. And we contrast the U.S. US approach with countries like Germany. First, as a state, Connecticut and its residents have done a good job following guidelines to keep the number of cases low. But flare-ups are bound to happen. The city of Danbury knows this firsthand. The state issued its first COVID alert two weeks ago when the rate of cases increased in Danbury over a two-week period. Joining us now to talk more about the local outbreak and the response is Mark Boughton. He's mayor of the city of Danbury. He's on Zoom today. Uh, Mayor Boughton, welcome to our show. Well, thanks for having me. You can join our conversation as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Mayor Bowden, I believe Danbury Hospital treated the state's first COVID case back in in March. Uh, Your city has been dealing with a spike over the last two weeks. When you first heard this from health officials, how worried were you? Well, it's concerning for us because um, a large percentage of our positive cases now are young people. Uh, from ages six to roughly 18. So that's a little bit different cohort than we've seen in the past. The good news is that these young people have these very, very strong immune systems and they're able to fend off uh, the virus a lot easier than somebody who's elderly or might have an underlying health condition. Um, But the bad news is they carry a higher viral load, so they're more contagious than uh, somebody else. So, um, you know, that was what really kind of bothered us here. And obviously with schools getting ready to open and a whole bunch of other things going on, um, we had to make some strategic decisions to try to, you know, push those numbers back down again to more acceptable levels. Mm. And some of those decisions, in-person classes for public school students uh, won't start until maybe October 1st, depending on, on what the, the caseload looks like? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, look, these aren't popular decisions and um, it's been difficult because uh, residents really do have COVID fatigue and they're tired of dealing with all of these different mandates and regulations. But again, until there's an effective vaccine or or a better strategy, this is what we have to do. So we will be doing a um, reevaluation, if you will, sort of by about mid-September where the numbers are. And that gives us about three weeks to ramp up for in-person schooling, which we would then try to launch on October 1st. So we're starting out distance learning. Then hopefully we can move to um, a hybrid form, which is two days in, two days out. Tell us more about, I believe, DPH, the Department of Public Health, when they issued this COVID alert, they said that the outbreak in Danbury was related to both domestic and international travel. What can you tell us about uh, why uh, this transmission happened and and is is especially impacting uh, this age range that you mentioned, 6 to 18 years old? 
Yeah, so we saw spread. We see spread right now in three key areas. One is, as you mentioned, travel, both uh, international and domestic. People are, you know, took their summer vacations to visit relatives, friends, neighbors, um, extended family, and and other parts of the U.S. and uh, across the globe. And when they came back, they didn't register or sign in. Now you have to, but it was a little bit different system early on. So that ended up causing a spread. And then we've seen it in some of our athletic leagues, both adult and uh, youth leagues. So that's another uh, area of concern uh, for us. And then, you know, additionally, um, we've seen spread happening at some of our nursing homes, not all of them, but a little bit, numbers are a little bit elevated there. So uh, that tells us that it's out in the community uh, and that people are, uh, inter- intermingling, um, they're not following guidance and ending up, uh, you know, uh, spreading the virus to other people. So all these things have come together uh, to be a challenge to us. We also had issues with our our, li- our lake. We have a very small piece of mm-hmm. Canwood Lake, which is a very large lake, as you know. And um, we had young people that were partying on islands out on the lake uh, with no sanitary facilities. You'd have uh, 100, 200 people on a postage stamp small, tiny island partying and having a great time, which is fine during the summer, but obviously in a, a, a pandemic, it's uh, difficult to deal with. So all those things required us to take some some hard choices, but those are the things that you have to do, again, to try to wrestle this to the ground so that we can get schools open and we can get back to normal. Hmm. So Mayor Bouton, you took these steps uh, to curb uh, transmission, but how have you seen your city residents responding, especially young people, because we're seeing uh, clusters of cases, especially in, in college communities over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, there is concern that among uh, young adults uh, that they may not be taking this as serious as they should. How have you seen them respond? Well, they, you know, Danbury kids have been great in general, um, 90 percent of them are doing what they're supposed to be doing. There's always that 10 percent that doesn't. So it's a challenge for us. And we you know, continue to try to remind them of guidance. We've also expanded our testing uh, to levels that we've never seen in Danbury. And we're testing almost every day for free with no symptoms. You can go and no appointment necessary. Go and get a test as well. Um, we're just hoping that they take it seriously. You know, we have the largest high school in the state with 3,500 kids. So trying to put them into one building and maintain social distancing and make sure everybody wears a mask and protect our staff members is very, very difficult for us to do, uh, hence why we asked for the hybrid model to begin with. So all these things come together, and, and the longer that people, particularly young people, don't follow the guidance and don't wear their masks and don't do the things that we ask them to do, the longer we're going to be stuck in this mess. So um, you know, we just hope that uh, they've gotten the message and will understand that it's not necessarily them that, you know, will um, get very, very sick, but it's who they spread it to. You know, you could end up getting somebody uh, fatally sick. So you have to be really careful. You're hearing Mark Bouton here on Where We Live. He's mayor of the city of Danbury, Connecticut. As we talk about how his city has responded with a spike in COVID-19 cases over the last couple of weeks, if you live in Danbury, we'd love to hear from you about what you're observing uh, in your community in terms of following uh, these uh, guidelines uh, to keep uh, transmission low. The number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, uh, Mayor Bouton, tell me more about the the testing uh, that you've been able to make available to your residents. How quickly are you able to get test results? Well, that is a challenge. So we're using our federally funded um, clinics. There's two of them here, Community Health Center and uh, Connecticut uh, Institute for Communities. Both of those two have been fantastic at setting up uh, pop-up testing sites at schools and at, at various uh, city facilities. 
and we are getting a good turnout to those um, testing sessions. However, the results, the, a lot of the labs are very, very busy. And so it takes generally three to four days for you to get results. So we do uh, tell people if they are feeling symptoms to quarantine themselves until the results come in and then they obviously can go back out. Um, but, you know, again, I think a lot of this is due to COVID fatigue where people just, they just have had enough. And, you know, as much as a public official, I beg, prod, and plead with people to follow guidance. It's, you know, frustrating for people and they, they don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, now we've got the winter or well, at least the fall rolling in. And so that creates another uh, situation. But again, as you know, if we don't do these things, we're not going to be able to get past this. And I think everybody uh, wants to be moved beyond uh, COVID-19. Mm. Uh, Mayor Bowden, it's been about 10 days since the state issued that first COVID alert about uh, Danbury, Connecticut's spike in cases. So can you tell us uh, what's the latest in terms of, of, of uh, the case number? And you know, is it decreasing? Are you seeing um, some positive change uh, with the response? I would say um, yesterday we had 17 uh, positive COVID-19 cases here in Danbury. Um, I would say that it's definitely leveled off. So we're, we used to run, you know, probably three weeks ago, we were running about two a day or one a day or even zero cases mm -hmm. a day. Now we're up to about 17 or 18. We had one high day of 44. Um, so I would say that uh, it's starting to, to plateau, which is really good news for us. Um, and now it takes a couple of weeks to bring it back down. Um, we're running at about 6%, 7% positivity rate that's much much higher than the rest of the state which is at one or just below one percent so there's definitely something going on here and it's just something we have to manage and watch carefully and then again uh, try to get our arms around it hmm. when we think about uh, how uh, different communities uh, will have to respond as uh, as the months proceed uh, these outbreaks are a reality uh, do you feel like you have enough support and resources from the state to help you should this happen again uh, mayor bowden yeah, I think you're you're on point. I mean, I think every community across this country is going to have to get used to at some time or another having some kind of outbreak and again until there's a, an effective vaccine. I have to say that the state of Connecticut has been fantastic from the governor to the Department of Public Health to their team interfacing with our team and you know just getting ahead of this. They've been great. And you know, uh, the measure sometimes of government is Yes, it's one of the great things you can do in the good times, but it's also how you respond in the bad times. And, and I, I think our state government has really stepped to the plate. There's always, you can always Monday morning quarterback nationally and, and of course here in Connecticut and even in our communities about what went right, what went wrong. But in general, um, I have to say, I think the governor and his team have been on, on point throughout this whole um, challenge. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Mayor Bowden, uh, the state helped share a public service announcement in Portuguese because your city has a significant Brazilian community. Uh, how did that outreach uh, help uh, reach your residents uh, where English is not their first language? And did you feel like it was an adequate response uh, to get the word out citywide? Yeah, so it's, 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 I'm glad you asked that, Lucy. So there are the people in the, the Portuguese community think that, you know, everybody's worried about having this blamed on them. And as I tell everybody, there's no blame here. You know, nobody, nobody in Danbury or in Connecticut or in the United States of America brought COVID-19 here. It's a question of what the facts are, where you have spread, and then how do you address it? Um, but uh, the Portuguese community definitely took offense to this, but it really shouldn't be an offensive thing. They had nothing to do with the spread. There was an issue within the Brazilian community. Um, who speak Portuguese, and I think that's where a lot of the confusion was. So those kinds of outcall 
out calls or communications in native languages are really important, very, very helpful. We, we've hired a bunch of trilingual contact tracers that can do the track and trace for us. They speak Spanish, Portuguese, and English, and that's been super helpful. Um, and it's just a matter of we're all in this together. No, you know, we shouldn't be dividing each other. We just, we got to take the right steps and make sure that we follow the guidance and we'll be fine. And, and those kinds of services are invaluable. Translation services as well are very helpful when we're doing testing sites to let people know that they're free. You don't need an appointment and none of the information will in any way be used against you because everything's protected by HIPAA. I want to fit in a quick call. Uh, Stephen's calling in. Uh, I believe he's calling from Middletown, but owns property in Danbury. Uh, Stephen, what's your question for Mayor Bowden? Uh, good morning, Mayor Bowden. My question uh, to you is, uh, are you planning to or have you already started uh, wastewater testing uh, to, uh, as a kind of COVID-19 early warning uh, tracer? Uh, this is starting to be used in other cities and uh, with pretty good success, and I think it's worth a look. Yeah, so we, um, you know, I definitely have seen the success they had at the, I think it's the University of Arizona, where they just were able to track and trace uh, a spread that was going on in a dormitory. Um, we have a, a centralized wastewater treatment plant that deals with five communities, not just Danbury. So it would be a little more difficult because you need to know exactly where uh, the effluent is coming from. However, there are certainly big buildings that would be it would be of value, um, particularly dormitories at Western Connecticut State University, um, specific housing projects that use a, uh, a common um, waistline. Those are areas that um, that that's something we're interested in. That uh, ability to trace through uh, the effluent uh, potential spread and uh, get ahead of it. Again, uh, we've been speaking to Mayor Mark Boughton of the city of Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, Mayor Boughton, we thank you for joining us today on the show. Uh, you know, as we see uh, the weather cooling, people still enjoy being outside. Uh, and I'm just wondering if there are other steps that uh, you think city residents can take uh, to keep the spread low in your city. No, I appreciate uh, the opportunity here, Lisa, uh, Lucy. Sorry. So, yeah, I mean, look, we got to do uh, follow the guidance. We got to wear our masks, wash our hands frequently, um, and if you if you're feeling symptoms, um, get tested right away. And even if you're not feeling symptoms, take advantage of the free testing that we're offering and go get tested. It, it can't hurt you. And at the end of the day, you may be asymptomatic, and we could stop a spread that's going on. Um, we've done the steps that we think we need to do in terms of shutting down our athletic leagues, closing the boat launches at the lake, um, and a whole bunch of tracking better uh, some of the international and national travel. But at the end of the day, um, it's going to take all of us working together. You know, I, I can't have an uh, enforcement team on every street corner, and I need families and, and extended families to step up and to be able to take care of each other and follow uh, our, our guidance. And we also have tremendous help from New Vance, uh, the Danbury Hospital System that's been outstanding. So we'll get ahead of this, but it is something to watch carefully. And certainly we are setting a template for future communities that may go through a similar spread. Mayor Bowton, thanks for your time. Thanks, Lucy. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, testing and tracing are ways local health officials can stop an outbreak of coronavirus. We learn more about these efforts in Connecticut. Do you have questions about contact tracing? Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. We just heard from Danbury Mayor Mark Boughton about how his city is working to contain a local coronavirus outbreak. We wanted to learn more about how public health departments work with elected leaders and others in a pandemic. Joining us now on Zoom is Jennifer Curtanis. She's Director of Health for the Farmington Valley Health District. She's also President of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Lucy. We're going to be learning more about uh, how contact tracing works. If you have a question uh, for our guests, the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Jennifer, I mentioned you're Director of Health for the Farmington Valley Health District. So there are many towns uh, within your health district. Uh, Tell us uh, uh, who you work with in terms of uh, dealing with uh, public health issues like uh, COVID-19. Sure. So um, let me just start by saying that there are approximately 70 local health departments in Connecticut working hard with the state health department on this COVID response. Um, Larger cities like Danbury have a standalone municipal department. And then there are health departments like mine that serve multiple towns. They're called district health departments. We all have the same responsibilities, regulatory obligations, et cetera. We just happen to provide those services for multiple towns. As you mentioned, I serve 10 towns, um, the largest being Farmington, Simsbury, and Avon. We also support the Grambys, Gramby and East Gramby, Canton, Heartland, New Hartford, Colebrook, and Bark Hampstead, and a population of about 110,000. Those are a lot of towns. So so how do you do it, Jennifer, you and your team? How many uh, people work within your health district to respond to the needs of all of these communities? Sure. So most people in a non-pandemic um, know their local health department for our regulatory functions, mostly in the environmental health arena, um, restaurant safety, um, septic on-site, septic system approvals, um, inspections of other facilities like salons and um, daycares, pools, things like that. Um, I have a total team of 15. Um, About 50% of those work in the environmental health arena as registered sanitarians. And then the rest of us work either in administration or community health programming. We do a lot of disease prevention, health promotion, um, review of data, and looking at addressing the things that are creating the most um, severe impacts on health in our communities. So Jennifer, in a pandemic, how did you have to shift your department's focus given uh, the need uh, to deal with, again, the number of cases that were growing in Connecticut in in March and April? And even though cases are low and depending on where people live in the state, everyone is bracing for that, that second wave. Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously it was a lot of retraining. All of our team has been trained to be contact tracers um, so that when and if we need to surge up that um, component of our work, we will have staff on board. And obviously, every single day during this response, we have had to prioritize um, while things like um, development and building of new houses and design of septic systems continue to move forward. 
Um, our restaurant inspections continue to be needed now with another layer of COVID control strategies. Our daycares are still operating, et cetera. Um, we just may not be able to get to everything as quickly. And I'm required and my team is required to prioritize every single day so that we make sure we can devote what we the time we need to, um, you know, reducing the spread of COVID in particular. So now that we're in this pandemic, uh, we just heard from Dan Barry about how they have this spike in cases. It's so important to get people tested, but also contact tracing is a, a, a long tool that public health officials use. And so can you break it down for us? Tell us uh, how it works and how your team has been able to do this uh, within your health district. Sure. So we have across the state um, something called the Connecticut Electronic Disease Surveillance System. So um, by law, COVID cases are required to be reported either by a laboratory and or a physician to the state system. We receive that data from the state health department. We review it every single day, multiple times a day. Um, and so that tells us where the positive cases are in our communities. That data is also transferred into a contact tracing portal, again, that we review every single day. So when a case appears in the contact tracing system, it is assigned to a staff member. They immediately, um, hopefully there is a phone number, although that can be difficult. We immediately place a call once we make contact with the case, um, we ascertain a variety of information from them related to um, what they believe their potential exposure may have been, if they know that, um, whether they have symptoms, what the onset of symptoms was um, in terms of date, where, where um, they have been, where they were tested, um, once we collect that basic information, then we begin to explore who they were in close contact with during the period of time that they were infectious. So um, prior to us beginning to open up the state and people, you know, slowly dipping their toe back into getting back to work and that sort of thing, contact tracing was a little bit easier because um, everyone was pretty much hunkered down during the you know, early days of this epi epidemic, pandemic, um, staying home. So close contacts were primarily household contacts. Um, now it's getting a little bit trickier as uh, kids are going back to college, as people are going back to work. Um, but we do try and identify all of their contacts and then we make connections with them. The cases, the confirmed cases are asked to stay home and isolate, which means really having no contact with anyone um, for a period of time of a minimum of 10 days from the onset of symptoms. And their close contacts are asked to quarantine for a period of up to 14 days. Um, that's the time period it takes from a exposure to when you will actually develop symptoms or the disease. Hmm. 
Again, you're hearing Jennifer Curtanis. She's director of health for the Farmington Valley Health District, which includes uh, several towns, also president of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. As we learn more about contact tracing, uh, Jennifer, when your staff calls someone who is a confirmed COVID-19 case, how often are they picking up the phone or calling your tracers back? And are they willing to give you that information? Um, I have to say and really commend our community because we have had a very rare occasion where someone has absolutely refused to provide us with any information. Um, Most of the time, people are very willing to talk to us. They appreciate the importance of contact tracing in slowing the spread of this disease. And so, for the most part, I would say 99% of the time, we have had great success rate. Um, There are challenges um, when we don't have a phone number. Um, When we don't have a phone number, we immediately send a letter and ask them to contact us. And even in those cases, the majority of the time, we do hear back from them. Um, Because sometimes there can be a delay either in someone returning a phone call or that letter getting out, it's imperative that if you are being tested for COVID, that you really isolate yourself until such time as you get that test result. Um, Because if you are questioning enough that you may have COVID, that you're getting a test, then you should assume that you do have it and isolate until such time as you have those results. When you talk to people about the importance of isolating, how often are they committed to doing that? Uh, Because people have work obligations, other uh, factors happening in their lives, you know, are they mandated to stay at home during that time, Jennifer? How do your tracers build that trust uh, to tell people this is what you have to do and this is why so that they that they listen? Yeah, well, um, employers have really been Um, we really maximize the opportunity for these folks to comply. So part of that is employers have been really quite good about allowing people to work remotely uh, during a quarantine or an isolation period if they're healthy enough to do so. Um, Obviously, they don't want an outbreak in their workplace, so they've been very supportive. So that's been helpful. We also ask questions regarding their ability to access food or um, medications or things like that. Um, Do they have friends and family that can drop off food or other needs during the quarantine or isolation period? If they don't have access to that type of support, we will link them with social services in our towns. So we really do everything we can to uh, support them in their staying home for the 10 to 14 days. And I think that, um, you know, for the most, we also connect with them, you know, pretty regularly. Every other day, we're making a phone call, we're checking in, we're checking on their symptoms, how they're feeling. And I think that that builds a rapport and a sense of trust that um, is really helpful as we navigate this with individuals. We talked to Department of Public Health Acting Commissioner uh, Gifford uh, in July, and this is what she told us about uh, contact tracing in our state. We're seeing close to half of people actually being reached, uh, which is much higher than we were seeing earlier on. We have a, 
a single phone number now that's uh, when you pick up your phone or you get a call from a contact tracer, it says CT COVID trace um, so that people know it's not spam, um, that they're getting a call from their local health department or health district. And um, we're hoping that that will help people have confidence in picking up the phone. I thought that was really interesting because in this day, Jennifer, we get so many spam calls on our cell phones. So when you and your staff are calling uh, individuals who have tested positive, do they see that can CT COVID trace show up on their phone? We actually have had a little bit of a challenge with that Ring Central system. When we call from our landline at the office, it shows up as the Farmington Valley Health District. Um, and then we give our individual work cell phone numbers so that our cases and contacts can have a direct line to us, um, you know, seven days a week. Um, I think that the state has also done a little bit more and certainly the general public understands a little bit more about the importance of contact tracing. So I think that's contributed to an increase in uh, the percentage of individuals that are actually uh, being responsive. Um, I think there's also differences uh, across the state in our um, cities in particular. Um, early on, we did not have the resources or the trained staff that could make those phone calls in um, Spanish, as an example, or a person's uh, primary language spoken. And I think there's been some great headway made there to ensure that um, we are building cadres of trusted community members that can help with contact tracing in those areas as well. And tell us more about the relationship uh, that your health district and others has with the State Department of Public Health. I know there was a contact tracing program that the state DPH uh, wanted all health districts to be using. It started off rocky. How is it working now, Jennifer? Um, it did start off um, rocky. I think that, you know, I think this goes back to years of disinvestment in a public health system and you know, so we didn't have the disease surveillance systems or the contact tracing systems at the start of this pandemic that really allowed us to hit the ground running. So, you know, I kind of use the analogy, it was like building an airplane while you're flying it. Um, and I think that was the position that we were all put in. Um, and obviously, you know, there were bumps in the road. Um, the contact tracing system, the electronic system, it is working better. I think we're all getting more comfortable with it. I can tell you we still use a paper-based system when we're on the phone talking to our cases and contacts. We just find it's more thorough, more complete, an easier way for us to document what we're hearing. But we plug all of the relevant information back into that state system. And I think that as much as there was a little bit of pushback initially on the system, it really is imperative that we do have a statewide system because it's important that at the highest levels, we understand what proportion of our cases are being contacted, um, how many contacts are associated with each case. And the best way to get all that information is to have a single statewide contact tracing system. 
You're hearing Jennifer Curtanis again, Director of Health for the Farmington Valley Health District. She's also president of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. As we learn more about the work health districts are doing around our state in this pandemic, if you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677. If you received a call from a contact tracer, we'd love to hear from you again. That's 888-720-WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Jennifer, you said something earlier earlier about disinvestment and this idea that uh, many health officials are, uh, again, uh, in the sky, uh, building the airplane uh, while you're flying. And that that's problematic in a pandemic, especially. And I wanted you to talk more about how uh, health districts have been underfunded in recent years and what has been the fix. Are you getting enough now from Congress and even from our local state? Mm-hmm. So, um Connecticut local health departments are generate revenue in a number of different ways. Um, their municipalities obviously invest in those services much like they would a different department um, within a town. Um, we also generate revenue from fees associated with inspections, licensure, et cetera. Um, but we also receive per capita funding from the state health from the state from um, it's written into state statute. Um, And that's a dollar amount that is given to each district or health department um, for each person that resides or that they serve. Um, And this has been underfunded. It's never been increased in over 20 years. Um, It's been underfunded by the governor for many years and that has not changed. Right now, the Farmington Valley Health District receives less than $1.85 per person for all of the public health protections and work that we're required to do. Um, So that's, you know, ongoing disinvestment of our health system in Connecticut. With respect to federal COVID funding, Initially, each local health department received about on average $40,000 in federal CDC monies that was coming into the state. Um, And that's really to date all I've received in the six months that we've been dealing with this pandemic response. I mean, $40,000, my greatest asset in this fight against COVID is human resources and $40,000 doesn't get me anything. Um, We did recently learn that we will be receiving additional CDC funding passed through the state. However, the timeliness of this is just poor because we're six months in. Um, You have to recruit and identify and retain and train the types of staff that you need that can do contact tracing, etc. So, We will work with those additional resources. We're appreciative for the additional resources. We just, they were, wish they were far more uh, time sensitive. Mm. Um, We know that uh, legislators uh, will be meeting in session. I think there might be another special session before the end of the year, but at the regular session begins, I think in January. Do you think you have uh, lawmakers attention now to help directors that you speak with on a weekly basis feel confident you will be getting extra resources, Jennifer? Well, um, I'm I'm not confident, but I would like to be hopeful. We have um, our state association of health directors, the Connecticut Association of Directors of Health has 
We have advocated and championed for this for many, many, many years, as far back as I can go. And we have warned of the implications of this disinvestment in our public health system. And, you know, our local health departments are stretched thin, stretched to the max, even on a normal time period. We can't get to the work that we need to be doing. And it's just been magnified under the pressures of this pandemic. Um, we have brought it to the attention of the Appropriations Committee. Um, some of our boards of health and municipal leaders have brought it to the attention of other legislators and to the governor and to the commissioner. So um, I will remain hopeful. Um, but, you know, when we do our job, quite frankly, we're invisible. Things don't happen. We don't have large disease outbreaks. We don't have large foodborne outbreaks because we're doing good work. Um, and so that makes us making ourselves visible that much more difficult. But I think, unfortunately, this pandemic is providing a new opportunity to focus on why investing in public health is so important. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Jennifer Curtanis, Director of Health for the Farmington Valley Health District. She's also president of the National Association of County and City Health Officials as we learn about uh, their work and how contact tracing works in our state. Now, what can the U.S. learn from public health officials abroad? After the break, we talked to a reporter in Germany about that country's response. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest on Zoom today, Jennifer Curtanis, Director of Health for the Farmington Valley Health District. She's also president of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. And we were wondering what lessons the U.S. can learn from the public health response to this pandemic abroad. Joining us now on Zoom is Lenora Chu, Berlin correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Lenora, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Uh, we know early on Germany experienced a precipitous rise in cases, what, like what we saw here in our country, but it, it looks like things took a different path for Germany. Can you talk about how public health officials responded and what it looks like today? Sure, that's a great question. You know, we went into a spring lockdown, and if you'll remember, Chancellor Angela Merkel got on the airwaves and immediately said, look, almost 60% of you in Germany might possibly get this coronavirus. So this is a very serious issue and we need your help in fighting it. And so we went into lockdown and, and remember you have this response here in Germany run by scientists. Um, Angela Merkel herself has a PhD in physical chemistry. Uh, another virologist who was leading the response here uh, started a podcast, which eventually gained millions of followers. So he was talking directly to the public and they were able in doing so to combat a lot of misinformation that has been spreading about the coronavirus elsewhere and online. So you had scientists leading the response. Now, what did they do during this period of lockdown uh, where schools were 100% online and bars and restaurants were closed? They began buying ventilators. Um, they increased their testing capacity and they did it in a very interesting way. They had a leading research hospital in Berlin. They developed a test and posted the formula online. 
So laboratories all over the country were allowed to produce their own test kits and that immediately boosted supply. And then the last thing that was really important to their coronavirus response was they hired legions of contact tracers um, to, to attempt this, you know, to, to basically track down the disease. And when Germany began to reopen in late June, they were ready. I thought it was interesting in one of your stories, Lenora, uh, the people who've been hired in Germany for contact tracing, they're called containment scouts. Sure. And that was really interesting to hear um, the situation earlier about funding. So mm -hmm. the containment scout program is, is actually federally funded. So, the, you know, it is up to each of Germany's 16 states to provide their own funding for the response. But how the federal government helped was they said, look, we're going to hire this army of people, containment scouts, and they're mostly medical students and health sciences students that they trained to be contact tracers. And they would deploy these contact tracers to wherever there were major outbreaks in case the local government couldn't uh, tackle the problem themselves. Hmm. Jennifer Curtanis, it, it really, uh, really can't compare the U.S. to Germany when we hear Lenora say that Germany uh, had science leading uh, their approach to the pandemic. And there weren't mixed messages. When we think about uh, the messages from the president's administration, the CDC, it doesn't make the job of health officials in this country, the United States. It's not easy for you to get the message out about uh, the, the things that need to happen to contain this virus. Yeah, um, uh, speaking as the president of our national association, it has been incredibly disheartening to see over 30 local and state public health officials either lose their jobs because they were fired, because their uh, supervisors, um, municipal officials did not support or agree with them and or um, be um, threatened by the public because they live in communities where the general public, they were not supported by leadership and the general public was just pushing back. Um, so this has been one of the most um, unfortunate politicizations of this uh, response that we could see. I can speak um, as a local health department in Connecticut that, you know, decisive early action by our governor regarding closures and mask wearing and social distancing um, has been exceedingly positive for us here in Connecticut. But on the national level, obviously, we're seeing this play out in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. Lenora, I wanted to go back to you. I understand that there have been protests by uh, some in Germany, but they're not necessarily aligned with a major political party. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, what their uh, concerns and what they're bringing up uh, in the public. Sure. Now, you know, over the weekend, the government did authorize this gathering, but they were not mm -hmm. really local to Berlin. It was a group of, um, frankly, neo-Nazis, um, some sort of pro-imperialist Germany, Germany supporters. Um, you had some people who saying their constitutional rights are being violated because they're being required to wear masks in grocery stores. And then you had just everyday citizens who didn't want to go back into lockdown because they're afraid of losing work. So you had this sort of hodgepodge coalition. Now, I don't think this is going to be a lasting protest movement. Um, I talked to an analyst just over the weekend who said, you know, it's not like an organized movement. A lot of the people who came to Berlin for this protest were from other places, and then they will scatter and go back home. So I, I don't think it's going to be a coordinated 
sort of anti-mask, anti-corona response effort that you're seeing in the United States. Mm. Now, when we were talking earlier about contact tracing of the containment scouts that uh, Germany has hired to help with contact tracing, what has been uh, the response of Germans? Are uh, they willing to cooperate? Um, and this is a, a process that's been working for the country and, and the many states within it? You know, about a month ago, Merkel was very worried uh, because the numbers were starting to go back up. We were at about 1,300 a day. That's up from, you know, 150 a day back in early July. So we came out of lockdown very strong, and then the case count has been ticking up. But I think the key takeaways are they're not yet finding schools to be a significant source of spread. And also, you know, I think um, just the last couple of days, the numbers had ticked down quite a bit, a, a little bit. So they're feeling very confident that this sort of test and tracing infrastructure that's in place is working. And the other thing is if they are seeing outbreaks, say at a workplace or at a particular school, they're not shutting down the entire building or school, they're shutting down classrooms, individual you know, units within that building. Um, they actually even can do mobile testing now. So say a student is reported to be infected at X high school in Berlin, a mobile testing unit will show up and test everybody in the class and start interviewing right away anybody that student might have been in contact with. So they really have been able to do a lot of things that um, are really a result of good planning and also infrastructure. That's really interesting to hear, Lenora. Here in Connecticut, schools are uh, either opening today on a hybrid or will be soon where there's some in-person classes, some distance learning. I wanted to go back to Jennifer Curtanis. Uh, when we think about the work that your health district is doing, I imagine you've been speaking a lot to uh, the local school districts about how to uh, deal with uh, guidelines to keep students and staff safe and what happens if there's an outbreak. Yeah, um, I'm very fortunate, even though I serve 10 towns, the superintendents in those 10 towns have been meeting weekly with me as a collective so that we can move forward in a standardized way. Um, yes, we've been helping them interpret and uh, work with them to implement the control strategies, but we've also reviewed contact tracing protocols and what that would look like. Um, I think we're all a little, um, you know, anxious. Um, the first case is going to be the one where we really cut our teeth on all of our protocols, but I think we have reasonable systems and excellent communication channels. Um, so we'll, we'll move forward in partnership with our schools as these things play out. Lenora mentioned something that really struck me, this idea of mobile testing. When we think about if there's an outbreak in a school, is that something that Connecticut or, or health districts are even talking about is how to um, get students and staff tested quickly if there's an outbreak? Um, we've not talked about that, I think, in, in part because um, testing only tells you your status at a point in time. And we know that you can develop symptoms um, anywhere from two to 14 days after exposure. So until we have confidence in the testing strategies, in particular the rapid test, um, the most conservative approach is the one that we'll take. And that is once we identify close contacts requiring that they um, quarantine for the 14 days after exposure. Mm.
Uh, Lenora, again, we're talking to you uh, from Germany. When we think about uh, that country's healthcare system, a strong safety net, uh, people aren't fearful uh, to interact with the medical system in, in Germany. Here in this country, people are still worried if they're going to get billed for a COVID-19 test. Sure. You know, it's interesting. It's great that, you know, say in Danbury and other places, testing is now free. Um, Germany had an early response that included free testing. And, you know, the first time I went to the doctor here, I was surprised to get a bill for $60 that included lab testing. And the doctor said, you know, I, I meet Americans all the time who move to Germany and they're surprised, you know, but I tell them going to the doctor is not scary here. You know, you're not one diagnosis away from not being able to make your rent or your mortgage payment. And I think that, you know, this the strength of the public health system and also the social safety net has helped with a global pandemic. In this particular situation, it's incredibly helpful. Um, and, and I think that's a stronger ground floor to work from. Hmm. Lenora Chu, again, is Berlin correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. We'll tweet out links to her stories at where we live. Lenora, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And Jennifer Curtanis, before we let you go, again, uh, flu season's coming up. Uh, people are worried about uh, what the next few months will have in store for us, especially with schools opening. Uh, what do you want to tell our listeners about uh, what they should keep top of mind over the next few months? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for asking the question about flu season. Um, this year, more than ever, we really need people to get their flu shots. Local health departments across the state are um, working on plans to provide flu clinics in a socially distanced and um, protective way. So seek those flu shots. It'll be really important. Mm. And don't get COVID um, fatigue. Please continue <laughs> to do the things you're doing. Jennifer Curtanis, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Carmen Baskoff produced today's show.